Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Today, we'll be traveling to the cutting edge of legal technology as we explore a new frontier in terms of evidence, the inner workings of the brain. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, we're joined remotely by Professor Emily Murphy of UC Hastings Law School. Emily, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me, Joel. This is exciting. I'm excited because this topic lies squarely in the intersection of a couple of interests, criminal justice and what up until very recently was science fiction, but we'll also be touching on philosophy, ethics, and the limitations of the brain. So we've got a lot to look forward to. Let's get started. I commend you on picking a very interesting area of the law for your research. Thanks. It comes from my background. I was trained first and foremost as a behavioral neuroscientist and If you had asked me many years ago if I'd ever end up as a law professor, I would have laughed. But here we are, because during my brain science training, my neuroscience PhD, I started getting interested in more fundamental questions of how people behaved in context. And law was one way to study how people behaved in context, what we expected of people was a a different, but highly, to me, highly related method of studying human behavior. Before we jump into, I suppose, the legal gears or, you know, get our feet wet in the science, why don't we take it into a specific example? Professor, would you share about the case of Aditi Sharma? Sure. So this was a murder case in India. Ms. Sharma was accused of murdering her fiancé, by giving him some prasad, a blessed piece of food that had been laced with arsenic. And the way that the state wanted to prove this was by subjecting her to what was called the Brain Electrical Oscillation Signature Test, or BIOS, a technique relying on a particular type of brain imaging called EEG. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Used now by a couple of Indian forensic state labs and their technology has not been subjected to peer review. They are a private company. They were hoping to have it be in widespread use. There were some changes in Indian law afterwards, but essentially the idea was to bring Aditi Sharma into a room, put her in a comfortable chair in an air-conditioned room, connect her to a bunch of electrodes on her scalp, and ask her a series of prompts to which she was not expected to respond. So prompts such as, I gave Udit the Prasad and waiting for her brain to respond in with what the inventors of the technology call the signature, evidencing experiential knowledge or not. Professor, am I understanding this right in the sense that they would say things like, I bought these sweets and I mixed those sweets with arsenic and their claim was that they could tell the veracity or they could tell whether what she was saying is coming from her memory? So Aditi Sharma didn't have to say a thing. These were prompts that were read in the first person, but were read to her by investigators. She sat in silence. So they're analyzing her thoughts in a way. Her brain's responses to those prompts, which you could call her thoughts in some way. The idea behind this is... There's a couple of ideas behind it. One, 
is that I think is relatively uncontroversial is that in general, our brains are pretty good at determining things that happen to us, autobiographical knowledge from our own lives, from events that we did, from things that we observed or things that we heard about later. We're not perfect at this, but we're pretty good, right? And so the thesis of the researchers or the software developers of this technology is that there's some signature where given a prompt that corresponds with facts, autobiographical facts in one's own life, that the brain will be a giveaway, that there will be some sort of tell in the brain that recognizes that statement, that prompt as one that the person themselves has experienced. And they've called this experiential knowledge. It essentially functions like a guilty knowledge test. If this first person prompt designed by the investigators and read to her and requiring no response. She doesn't say yes. She doesn't say no. She doesn't say anything at all. If her brain recognizes that as her autobiographical story, the BO system would be able to detect it. And indeed, that's what they claimed they did. So what did these technologists find, I suppose, when they were analyzing Aditi's brain? They found that she had experiential knowledge of the investigators and then the, ultimately the prosecutor's theory of the case, which was that she had premeditatedly had bought these sweets, laced them with arsenic and given them to her fiance in order to kill him. Wow. And so she was found guilty or? He was convicted, but a later Indian Supreme Court decision, and I, this is now more than 10 years ago, my details may be a little fuzzy, a later Indian Supreme Court decision held that this particular technology and a few other technologies, uh, interrogation technologies in use in India could not be used without the consent of the accused. And there are concerns that these violate human rights. The challenge is that, and scholars are writing about this problem in particular, is that in India, the alternative to interrogation is quite widely recognized as the third degree. The alternative is beating people. Janine Lokanita has written a wonderful book called The Truth Machines, and it is about interrogation and police violence in India. So in that context, the researchers said, we think this works pretty well, and it's better than the alternative. There's also claims that this type of technology gets people to confess, especially when the alternative that they're faced with is brutal interrogation techniques. We'll talk a bit about the persuasiveness of this type of technology to jurors, but you're pointing to something else that our listeners may not have thought of is the persuasiveness to the actual accused, that if they think it works, that may be good enough. I mean, that's the known function of lie detection tests in police interrogations as well, that they're not admissible in most jurisdictions for such purposes, and yet investigators will tell you that they elicit confessions. Well, why don't we talk about some of the uses for this type of brain scanning technology? And when I say this type, I don't mean necessarily this one company in India. I want to know, I suppose, what you see are the main use cases for being able to read the brain in terms of evidence? So I don't want to spoil the party and say, I personally don't think there are a lot of use cases, at least not right now. And before we start to think about use cases in particular, we need to think about what we're asking technology to do 
And then what we're asking, because technology can advance and we can get better at it, but we also need to ask, what do we know about the biology of memory? And so different types of brain imaging technology have generally been in criminal defense, not exclusively, but more often than not well-off defendants. Sometimes post-conviction work, trying to argue for exoneration or for habeas relief after some, a criminal defendant has been convicted, those cases have often been promoted by promoters of this technology who are trying to sell a product and say, this works, and it's been admitted in court for an exonerated defendants. These are overstated claims of the legal importance of these technologies so far. But the hypothetical and imagined use cases would generally be, I think, more clearly on the side of criminal defendants who elect to voluntarily try to use brain imaging technology to bolster a defense claim. There may be imagined claims of use by the prosecution, and then these are not imagined, these are quite real, obviously, in India. But I think in the United States, we are much less likely to see those types of use cases because we run into all sorts of really interesting and currently unresolved constitutional questions about whether you can compel a defendant to undergo such brain imaging technology. That's such an interesting question. Does the government have a right, assuming they can, do they have a right to open the curtains and look deep into your brain? I don't think so. But even if they had that right, it is technologically infeasible to do it without a pretty cooperative subject. There are differences between the types of technologies that are used to look at brain imaging, but the more powerful one, in my opinion, of functional magnetic resonance imaging requires extremely expensive equipment that cannot be used with anybody who has any kind of ferrous or magnetic metal in their body, so eliminates some proportion of people. And what would eliminate anybody who didn't want to cooperate currently requires people to hold incredibly still in a loud clanging machine for a long period of time. If anyone has ever had an MRI, you're rolled into a fairly small tube and have to hold very, very still. This is particularly true for functional brain imaging. There are now it's understandings that functional brain imaging research can be distorted by slight head movements, by swallowing, by thinking about different things, moving off task. It is would require a highly compliant subject to be able to do fMRI with our current technology. So a hostile witness would, would have to do little more than twitch their head a little bit to, to game the system for now. Quite right, yeah, at least as the technology currently exists. Maybe we could talk, I suppose, a bit more about the science itself. What are we referring to when it comes to brain images? And what are the key technologies that are being... You alluded to a couple of them just then, but the technologies that we're envisioning for analyzing these brain activities. Yeah, there's a, a number of different ways that researchers and clinicians use to investigate the status of people's brains, the structure of their brains, the shape of their brains, whether there's a tumor or something else or a blood clot in their brains, and then a different and sometimes repurposed set of technologies to figure out the function of people's brains, how parts of their brain are involved in different aspects of cognition or emotion. But the two that have been most highly developed for, let's call them forensic purposes, are EEG, electroencephalography, and fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And they're very different. 
why don't we start with the EEG? I suppose, what are they mostly used for in day-to-day -day medicine? And then how could they be used to analyze people's memories? EEG in daily medicine is most often used for assessment of epilepsy because it is assessing directly the electrical activity in the brain. Really though, only on the outer surface of the brain, the part that's closest to your skull. EEG involves small electrodes that are placed directly on the scalp in particular locations. And there's different types of EEG arrays that measure very, very, very small oscillations of electrical activity. Because of course, our brains are full of neurons and neurons communicate with each other through electricity and then chemistry at the synapses where neurons join together. And our brains are always generating sort of small electrical oscillations in lots of different patterns, EEG tries to extract that electrical information, figure out what's going on. And then if we're trying to use it to detect something about behavior or thinking, it's usually put together in an analytical technique called an event-related potential. So our brains do have different electrical bleeps and bloops and signals. Bleeps and bloops. Yeah, particular signals. So there is a well-known response of a particular type of event-related potential called the P300 wave. And the P300 wave, the best shorthand to characterize this is it's a response to stimuli, things we see or hear, external sort of stimuli that are rare, recognized, and meaningful. And just to back up a little bit, an event-related potential, you might often see as a, a nice smooth graph. It's like, ooh, there's a big spike. EEG traces, raw data EEG traces, there are lots of teeny little, very squiggly lines put together. To get event-related potential, researchers typically average EEG samples over a number of different trials. So they show a stimulus a number of different times, and only with more and more data, can they pick out the meaningful signal from the background noise of the activity of our brains. Professor, what's an example of a test where I suppose scientists or lab technicians would be attempting to identify an event? What was the term you used? Event-related potential, an ERP for short. Yeah, I suppose what's an example of a test where, where technicians would be looking for an ERP it doesn't have to be in the criminal justice setting. Well, I can give you an example in the research directed at the criminal justice setting is the ERP P300 signal is used in development of a guilty knowledge type test by researchers who work in this area that let's take an example. We have a murder scene. Someone was bludgeoned to death with a blunt object and we have a suspect, but we're not sure what object was used. And we're pretty sure this is the person who did it. And you would show them a series of pictures of things you think are potential weapons in this case. So a crowbar, a baseball bat, the lead candlestick, and a piece of pipe. So if, if you see my brain going a little, behaving a little differently w around the lead candlestick, then you might want to give that some further analysis. Exactly. You might infer that that lead candlestick has unique salience to you. It's meaningful for some reason to you, whereas to 
Joe off the street, who is not a suspect in that case, that particular stimulus would not be so meaningful and would not elicit a P300 ERP response. So I like the way you said meaningfulness, because it may be that my beloved grandmother left that to me and thinking about the, the candlestick reminds me of someone very important to me, may be enough to, to spike it. Or it could be, well, I, you know, I use that for this particular heinous crime. This is exactly right, Joel. Or maybe we have a series of hockey stick, a baseball bat, a golf club, and the one that gets the event-related potential is the one related to the sport someone played as a child. <laughs> We're seeing some of the limitations already. Exactly. This is a really important thing to remember about all of the technologies, and we haven't talked about fMRI yet, about brain imaging, is that in order to stimulate the brain to, in theory, extract from it whatever someone knows or has experienced, researchers or investigators have to design those stimuli. They have to have some background knowledge of what they think is, let's call it the ground truth of the world, like what really happened. And they have to account for what other types of things might be salient. So the choice of stimuli, and there has to be a comparison stimuli in P300 related research of things that are not expected to be important or meaningful or salient versus things that would only be important or meaningful or salient to someone who has a particular type of knowledge that we're interested in. Got it. And the, the researchers and investigators have to make a lot of assumptions of varying degrees of confidence about which types of stimuli would be salient or meaningful or hit possibly on a false positive because your grandmother gave you that similar candlestick. You know, I was thinking of something lovely rather than something indicating guilty conscience. So that's the EEG. Was this, this was the technology that was used in Aditi's murder trial? Yes, it's very similar. Uh, it does rely on EEG-based technology. They use a proprietary algorithm to analyze the signature, as they call it, of the expression of the experiential knowledge pattern of behavior. No one, to my knowledge, has ever been able to analyze what the strength of the, the analysis of that algorithm. I think as a research question, the BIOS researchers have hit on something really interesting. As a forensic matter, I have a lot more doubts. Well, that's EEG. The other tech you mentioned is fMRI. Maybe you can walk us through that a bit as well. Sure. Yeah. Functional magnetic resonance imaging is a very safe, non-invasive, and like quite widely used research and clinical tool. We use less often in clinical work. MRI, just the magnetic resonance imaging itself is used frequently and widely in all kinds of clinical applications. It doesn't require any x-ray exposure. It doesn't require any injection of radioactive compounds like other forms of imaging do. It just requires mainly that someone can hold still in a fairly claustrophobic space and doesn't have any kind of magnetic metal in their body because it relies on the very slightly different magnetic properties of oxygenated and deoxygenated blood. How does that relate to brain activity? Well, our brains are energy hogs. They need oxygen and glucose. There is no storage of energy in the brain. So when you are awake, when you are asleep, when your brain is functioning, it's getting blood all the time, right? 
And neurons that have been active recently, that have been firing and talking to each other. They need more blood? Need more blood. They're metabolically more demanding. They're tired. They need their oxygen. So the change from oxygenated to deoxygenated blood can be detected and correlates to blood flow to particular parts of the brain, which is a slightly time delayed but close proxy for neural activation of that particular part of your brain. So if I'm having some intense brain activity in a certain part of my brain, the demand for new blood or for materials from, from my blood would be pretty instantaneous? It's not instantaneous, but it's, it's pretty Quick. short. The time delay for what's called the blood oxygen level dependent signal, the bold signal, which is what fMRI detects, is on the order of a few seconds. So if I have a very complex thought or a very emotional moment, uh, there'll be some blood demands a second or two later or a few seconds later. Yes. And the analysis programs that look at the extremely large amount of data collected from fMRI machines take that into account. Okay, it's time for the MCLE credit code. The code for this interview is 10615. Again, that's 10615. Now back to the interview. Okay, so those are the two technologies. You mentioned earlier that one of the limitations of the fMRI is currently it requires you to sit inside of a giant tin can? Yeah, more or less. There are new techniques being developed that are more portable. I mean, these tin cans are often found in medical imaging centers or research centers. They are gigantic magnets, especially the ones that give you very precise resolution. And so they have to be appropriately shielded and they you can't just plunk one into an office. And they're not cheap either, are they? No, they're not cheap. And they are not cheap to run either. The, given the computing power and the manpower and the expertise and the computing, the software needed to run these machines properly. There are folks who are working on more portable, smaller versions of these, but there's some, I think, basic physics limitations that we bump up against. Why don't we turn to the application of these technologies within our courts? First, these as new technologies fit within an established legal framework when it comes to using new technologies. Maybe you can walk us through that quickly. Well, the frameworks differ depending on the jurisdiction you're in. So of course, the law professor's answer is it depends. But in federal courts and many, but not all state jurisdictions, we're going to follow something like that's close to or the Daubert framework. Sometimes it's named differently in different states, which essentially it was a Supreme Court decision in 1993, Supreme Court decided Daubert versus Merrill Dow Pharmaceuticals and essentially set out a five-factor test for assessing the reliability of scientific evidence as one of the criterion, not the only criterion, but one of the criterion towards its admissibility. And this five-factor test wraps into it the older federal standard, which is still a standard in some states. I want to show off a little bit. That's the Fry standard. That's exactly right, sir. Yes, you have been cold called successfully today. No. <laughs> the Fry standard is a more of a general acceptance test that looks to the 
relevant researcher body to say, is this a technology that's generally accepted? Is this a technology and a methodology that's generally accepted as reliable? So you'd go to the experts. You'd say, if this is a something related to the brain, maybe we would ask neurologists, do we accept this? Yes, it's highly deferential to the experts. Whereas the Daubert standard itself puts judges in the position of being gatekeepers. There's several factors. Again, it's a factor-based test. It's not a hard and fast rule, but it meant to put judges in the position of being gatekeepers to determine whether a methodology is valid, not whether the conclusions from that methodology are valid, but whether an expert's offered methodology is valid. So whether the technique or theory can be and has been tested, is this a falsifiable hypothesis? They didn't put it in those terms. Whether it's been subjected to peer review, which is how science generally tries to progress by scrutinizing the data and the technique and the methods of other scientists. Whether it has a known or potential error rate, which is, again, important for understanding something as scientific rather than kind of science adjacent. The existence and maintenance of standards controlling its operation. Do we run PCR machines the same way each time? That's important to make sure we have valid, say, COVID-19 accurate forms of testing. Do we understand the base rates, the known error rate? These types of factors are things that verify something as science rather than, and scientific, that adhering to the scientific method rather than just the say-so of this particular expert. And then the last factor being that widespread acceptance in the scientific, relevant scientific community. So the last factor is kind of a nod to, to Fry or to the, the, the prior standard. It's a nod, but I think it's an important incorporation because it, but although it doesn't define the relevant scientific community, and of course that would be up for argument between the, the offering side of the side offering the expert and the side saying, this technique is, is not, does not work. We've talked about some of the, I suppose, flaws in, in forensic science in some other interviews related to the Innocence Project and to a couple of forensic labs. Maybe you don't agree, but Daubert, it does seem to be an upgrade in some respects because they're, they're requiring not just that you know 99% of dentists recommend this toothpaste, but that there's some objective evidence hopefully, to back up the new tech? In an ideal world, yes. In and an there's a world. massive literature about whether Daubert has succeeded or failed. The question is whether it puts judges in a position that they are well-suited to be in. Um, judges who, by and large, lack any kind of scientific training. I mean, most people who go to law school don't come from a scientific background. Not Not all of them, but many, if not most. And Having experienced the attempt to teach some basic statistical inference and statistics methods to law students and being met with sort of shock and horror, you know. Well, Emily, we need more lawyers like you. Which is why I'm trying to train them this way. Yes. So Daubert has been, I have not done these studies, the empirical literature, though, is that Daubert is kind of widely recognized at this point to be sort of a mess in lower courts. Maybe this was entirely predictable given when you have a very flexible five-factor standard rather than a, a hard and fast rule or deference to experts. I, I'm kind of agnostic as to whether it's better or worse than Fry. Both are subject to zealous advocacy. I mean, I, I don't know how we would design an, a standard for scientific evidence 
that is compatible with the role of zealous advocacy in the courtroom. Because the zealous advocate is going to intelligently define the relevant set of experts for whom this technology is valid and useful and helpful. And the, the opposing side will say, this is not the relevant set of experts at all. It's, it's this set of people over who say no, right? So ultimately, a judge is kind of adjudicating a battle of the experts. Some techniques are better than others at giving us known error rates. Cutting edge techniques, which may still nevertheless be reliable, may not have and may never have knowable error rates. And that is kind of the nature of scientific evidence, especially when you start to move towards evidence of real world behavior. Interesting. Is that because you can't put it into a lab setting? It's not because you can't put it into a lab setting. It's because to get the real world error rates, we would need massive epidemiological studies of how people behave in the real world. And for example, specific to the issue of memory detection, we don't have a very good understanding of how often people make memory errors in their daily lives. We have some understanding, but we don't have a widespread epidemiological study. And it might, in fact, be impossible to do that because in order to do that, we would have to have vast numbers of subjects where video cameras around their necks, which is done in some memory research, to, to get the ground truth of what happened. And then we would have to test to have those subjects recount their narrative of their life at many different points throughout their life. And we'd have to check them. That's not research that can happen. But we know from the best available memory research, we know that memory errors are incredibly common. I mean, you and all the other viewers here have probably had these experiences, deja vu being the most prominent one. Deja vu is an experience of having the subjective experience that you've experienced something before when you definitely haven't. I mean, unless we live in the matrix, right? We do know that people's memories change even when they're not, there's no nefarious purpose for that. Memory is not a video camera. It's a constantly reconstructive process. And our best current research on memory retrieval and reconsolidation shows us that down at the cellular level of how memories are encoded, each time we reactivate a memory, we make it subject to change. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.